Hello, readers. Coming up, it's my chat with Dean Carnassus on A Runner's High. First, I wanted to encourage you to check out booksonpod.com. You can sort through past shows by episode number, book title, author's last name, or search by subject. For instance, select the sports, self-help, or young readers category for episode number 137 with Chris Bosch on Letters to a Young Athlete. This is Chris Bosch, author of Letters to a Young Athlete, and you're listening to Books on Pod with Trey Elling. Hello, readers. Dean Carnassus is a legend in the running world, a former Time Magazine 100 Most Influential People in the World, the most well-known ultra-marathoner in the sports history, and a best-selling author. His newest book is titled, A Runner's High, My Life in Motion. Dean, thank you for the time. How are you doing today? Thanks for having me run by. <laughs> you got it, man. So what was your goal with this book? You've obviously written a couple of others in the past that have been bestsellers. What were you trying to accomplish with A Runner's High? A Runner's High is somewhat of a sequel to my first book, which was Ultra Marathon Man. Uh, Ultra Marathon Man uh, was a kind of a coming of age book where I discovered this crazy sport called ultra marathoning and try, you know, just had to try it myself and how I kind of learned about uh, the ethos and the difficulties and everything related to, you know, running massive distances. And, you know, 25 years later, I'm somehow still pulling it off. And I wanted to talk about the journey, how it's been, you know, how I've changed, how the sport has changed, and also to peer inward a bit more in this book. I think my other books were more uh, focused on, you know, events and crazy races I've done where this, you know, it's the narrative thread is still a race, but it also is a lot of reflection and a lot of um, kind of getting the head of myself and other runners. I'm guessing you've been asked this question as much or more than any others throughout the course of your career and all the interviews that you've conducted in that time. But why do you run such long distances in ridiculously grueling conditions? <laughs> you know, I think I think there's magic in misery. Uh, I think in the Western culture, we you know, we, we've thought if we had every convenience available to us, every comfort, we'd be happy. And in a lot of ways, we're, we're so comfortable, we're miserable. And an ultra marathon is anything but comfortable. It's it's very uncomfortable. It's very difficult, and it's very challenging. It also is very rewarding if you can somehow reach the finish line. Uh, you know, everything um, in life is easy. So why do something hard? I guess because everything comes easy. It's pretty crazy to read about just how much ultra marathoning has grown in the last two plus decades now. In the last 23 years, you write that the sport has grown 1,676%. Is that sort of growth a good thing for the sport? <laughs> I guess it depends on your perspective. <laughs> you know, a lot of, I, you know, I do get some flack from people saying, you know, you kind of, I'll never forget the, 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 what one individual, you, you know, you kind of gave away the holy grail of running. <laughs> And, you know, I don't know if running hundreds of miles is the holy grail. Um, you know, I, I don't see a downside to more people, uh, especially running on a trail. I think the more you get out in nature, the more you appreciate the environment, you know, the healthier you become, uh, you know, the, the more um, available you are to friends and family. Although, you know, your absence is certainly noted when you're running a long time. When you're, when you're with them, you're more present. Uh, you know, the downside is that a lot of the marquee races 
are very difficult to get into. Believe it or not, there are lottery systems. And for a race called the Western States 100 mile endurance run, you know, the odds of getting in on the lottery are lower than the odds of getting into Harvard. So it is, it is pretty crazy how competitive it is. Some of these races just to get an entry to run the darn thing. And we'll certainly get into your experience of running the Western States 100 uh, within the last couple of years. You had a pretty long break in between. And one of the older competitors when you did run that race a few years ago. First, though, you write that those moments where you are exhausted, where you're hurting, and when you're unable to hide from the harshest of elements is really why you run. Does that get to what you were talking about a few minutes ago of just dealing with outright strife? I think it does very much so. I think that, you know, gone is kind of the, the uncultivated human experience. You know, we, 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 you know, we, we live in man-made structures, you know, we get in our man-made cars and we drive to, you know, our our man-made offices. Um, Rare is it that we spend 24 hours outside in nature. Uh, Very few people, I think, ever do that maybe in their entire lives. Where an ultra marathon, you, you know, you're out, you're experiencing the sunrise, uh, you know, you're experiencing the midday heat, you're experiencing, you know, the coolness of sunset, um, you know, the sun setting, the moon rising, and and then the sun rising the next morning. And all the while, you're outside in nature. And that's very elemental to, you know, where we come from. But it's very much uh, an experience that most people uh, do not, you know, they're deprived of that their entire lives. And an ultra marathoner, I think is, is, you know, renewed and kind of reborn by, by doing these things we do. You once suffered a pretty hard crash in pursuit of a smiley face. What exactly happened there? <laughs> well, there, there are, you know, there's some, so there's some levity in these ultra marathons as well. I think, you know, a lot of people, I read my book looking for the intensity and there certainly is intensity, but there are also moments of, um, of almost comedy. And one of those I describe in the book is, um, you know, running this hundred kilometer race. So a 62 mile race and, and running off into the distance. And at the turnaround point, the guy said to me, well, there, you know, there's a packet of smiley faces next to a stick. Um, when you get there, you know, peel off one of the smiley faces and put it on your race bib so that we know you actually got to the turnaround spot. And I thought he was kidding me. I, I, you know, I said, I'm, hold on, I'm about to run off into the desert looking for a little stick with some <laughs> smiley faces below it. And he was, he was absolutely serious. So uh, somehow I found this stick out in the desert. And sure enough, there was a packet of smiley face stickers on there. The kind you get you know, on, your, on your report when you're a kid in grade school. If you did a good report, you get a bunch of smiley face stickers on there. So I put one on my, uh, on my race bib and... I uh, was able to prove I got to the turnaround point, and that was quite an entertaining moment. Now, I don't know what degree that was, but you also say that ultramarathoning has degrees of deterioration. What is the final phase in these degrees of deterioration? Well, I, you know, there's one time I, I did a, a three-day run, and I remember the third morning when I was running, so I hadn't slept for three days and I'd you know, been running hundreds of miles. And as I was running and the sun was coming up, I, I looked down and between my feet, there was, I would call it, you know, it looked like a praying mantis. It looked like a, a little miniature army man, a plastic army man, but it was moving like a praying mantis. <laughs> and I, I was looking down at this, this little thing scurrying along between my legs, kind of just staying right in front of me. And I realized that that was me. 
that I was looking down at myself from the perspective of being in a helicopter or being in a maybe in a hot air balloon. And I thought, you know, maybe this is not a body experience. It's as close as I've ever come to an out of body experience. But I would say that's kind of the, the final degree of separation. What's it like in the days after running an ultra marathon, running that far on your own, whether you're doing it over a single day or whether you're you're stretching or racing out over multiple days like you were just talking about? It's like being in a train wreck. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's, you know, you're, you're destroyed, you know, your sleep cycles are, are messed up. Uh, your body is, uh, incredibly, uh, incapacitated. I mean, it's hard to get out of bed in the morning, but you're in a, in a state of like heightened bliss. It's, it's hard to ex explain it, but I imagine, you know, I've never experimented with, um, you know, with, with, with opioids or anything like that, but I would imagine it's somewhat similar because, you know, you, you're in pain, but you don't feel pain and you feel a, a certain contentment that you rarely achieve, um, in, you know, in the normal course of, uh, of living. What's the Silk Road Ultra and how did you end up running it? Yeah, I, uh, I ended up running uh, 525 kilometers along the ancient Silk Road in Central Asia. Uh, between three form, former Soviet nations, uh, Uzbekistan, Kyrgyzstan, and Kazakhstan. And the Silk Road connects the three capital cities of, of those three nations. And I was a U.S. athlete ambassador, and I was sent there on a sports diplomacy envoy uh, to celebrate this 25 year of diplomatic relations with the U.S. And the idea was for me to run over 12 days, 525 kilometers between those three capital cities. And I later learned that originally uh, John Kerry, who was the, the head of the, the State Department of the Department of State, was he was a big cyclist and he was going to cycle between those three countries. But his plans fell through or something happened there. So they decided to get me to run there instead. And it was unlike any place I'd ever been on Earth. And I've run on all seven continents of Earth twice now. But Central Asia, where, you know, Uzbekistan and Kyrgyzstan and Kazakhstan, there are very few Western visitors, almost no Western visitors. So the places I, you know, I ran through, um, they'd never seen an American before. And it was uh, quite unique in that, you know, I never saw another McDonald's. I never saw a Starbucks coffee. I never heard English being spoken uh, the entire time I was there. And I write about it quite vividly in the book um, <laughs> and, and some of the things I, uh, I experienced along the way. Well, speaking of, what is the official drink of, I'm guessing this is pronounced Kazigurt, Kazakhstan, and how did that drink go down? <laughs> so when I was uh, you know, getting ready to, uh, to depart, I was given briefings by the State Department, on, you know, diplomatic briefings on how to, how to behave, how to respond to certain si situations. And I was told that when I came into some of these, you know, these rural country, um, these cities, these outposts, that the entire uh, population would be out to welcome me. They're, these were you know, nomadic cultures. And they very much welcome guests. So they said everyone from the city and the township will be out there to welcome you. And they'll have, um, you know, traditional music. They'll have uh, individuals in traditional costume and they'll present you with with a platter of food. That's just how they do it. And you need to try a little bit of each of the foods. So I'd been running 
for about, oh, nine or 10 hours uh, across Uzbekistan in, in the heat. I mean, it was 100 degrees. And I came running into this township. And sure enough, there were 3,000 people on the street waiting to greet me. And I came running in and there were these women in traditional costume uh, that were presenting me with platters of food and drink. And one of the women handed me something that looks like <clears throat> my best description would be it looked like um, a, a sawed off coconut, like the lower half of a coconut. And so it was a brown little bowl. And inside there was this white liquid that almost looked like um, coconut milk. Hmm. And she handed it to me and I thought, oh, this I hope this is something refreshing and cooling because I'm so overheated and and I'm so hungry <laughs> and I just need some electrolytes or something. And I took a sip of this and it was the most repulsive thing I've ever tasted it to, you know, to describe it. I, I think I, I said it tasted like uh, sour cream mixed into a, a bowl of champagne. Oof. Yeah. And it was their traditional drink. It's called kumis and kumis is it's warm fermented mare's milk. So oh it's gosh. warm horse milk and it tasted like drinking Parmesan cheese. But, but somehow I kept it down, and, and that made everyone very happy. All 3,000 people cheered for me when they saw I drank the kumis. So that was one such experience. Did you feel it when running the next day? I know you're not supposed to drink uh, dairy milk and, and then go on a long run. Did the mare's milk affect you that way? I'll tell you, it gave me a head rush when I first drank it. I mean, it was, it was so intense. And, you know, I only had a couple sips. I mean, that's all they said you had to do is just try a little bit of everything. So I, I, I had some of the kumis and, you know, it was it wasn't enough, I think, to ill affect me. But I did have they had a lot of platters of, of freshly cooked meat. So I ate a lot of meat. And afterward, I said to uh, one of my on, one of my um, State Department uh, handlers that the meat tasted really unique. It was kind of uh, a light flavor, almost nutty. And he said to me, you've never had coarse meat before, have you? I said, what? <laughs> he said, that was horse meat. It's pretty common. They eat horse in this area. Is there anything that it compares to, the horse steak? No, I guess it, I've had venison before, Okay, which is deer meat, and it tasted a little bit like that. Hmm. Interesting. It's, it's not something I'm going to have again. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's one lesson that you learned while running, and you've extracted a number of lessons from running that translate to life what's the greatest lesson that running has taught you? Probably that you're better than you think you are and you can go further than you think you can. You know, so many times in running there's, you hit a point, you know, my friend calls it a come to Jesus moment where you just think I, I, I can't go on this. The pain is too much. Uh, it's, I, I, I'm done. And somehow you gather up the the strength and the, the grit and the perseverance to continue onward. And it teaches you that limitations are largely in your own mind. Dean, what was your introduction to distance running? You know, I started running home from kindergarten when I was five years old. Hmm. And, you, you know, it was a little bit over a mile. And I just remember how much I loved the intensity of it. And I love being out in nature. And that was my first exposure. And then, uh, believe it or not, I, I, you know, I ran competitively when I was a freshman in high school, and then I, I stopped running. We won the the, cha the league championships, and I thought this is as far as I'm going to take running, and I, I stopped altogether. 
And I didn't resume until the night of my 30th birthday when I was in a, in a bar in San Francisco, you know, doing what a lot of people do on their 30th birthdays. I was drinking with my buddies. <laughs> and at midnight, I told them I was leaving. And they said, you know, wh where are you going? It's your 30th birthday. Let's have another round of tequila to celebrate. And I said, no, I'm going to go run 30 miles to celebrate my 30th birthday instead. And they looked at me and they said, but you're not a runner. You're drunk. And I said, yeah, I am, but I'm still going to do it. And, and I walked out of the bar and I didn't even own running gear at the time, but I had on these comfortable silk boxer shorts, you know, these silk underwear. <laughs> and I'll never forget. I peeled off my pants and just threw them down the, the alleyway and stumbled off into the night heading south. I knew there was a, a city called Half Moon Bay that was 30 miles away. And I thought, just run to Half Moon Bay. And, you know, it, it, I say run, but it was more like, you know, stumbling and hobbling and crawling. But I somehow, you know, made it 30 miles and ran straight through the night. And that run forever changed the course of my life. You know, it's funny. I've never run 30 miles, but there were times in my past, uh, probably around 30 and a little bit younger than that, where sometimes I would just run home as well. And it was usually couple, maybe five miles at the most, but there is something exhilarating about having a little, little bit of booze in your system and just going for a run. <laughs> well, my, that was, it worked great for me until about mile 15 when I sobered up and I thought, <laughs> what, what the hell am I doing out here? Uh, considering the remote terrain of most of the tracks that you run with ultra marathons, you're bound to encounter some wildlife. What's your scariest animal encounter? Wow. So I've, um, you know, I've seen tons of snakes. I've seen lots of scorpions, tarantulas, uh, bears, um, in Australia, you know, the I, kangaroos everywhere, wombats. But, um, I, I think probably my scariest uh, wildlife encounter was one night I was running, um, in a place called Marin County. So North of San Francisco on this backcountry road, and I, I run on these, you know, backcountry rural roads because there's not a lot of traffic out there. And I run all night. So I was running. It was about 2.15 a.m. And I've learned something. you got to keep your eyes open around that time because the bars let out at, at 2 a.m. And some people start using these backcountry roads because they don't want to use the main thoroughfares because they've been doing something they shouldn't be doing and they're driving a car. So I'm out there running and all of a sudden this car comes straight for me. And it's not that unusual. I mean, who's expecting to find a runner out there at, you know, 2.15 in the morning? But I'm pretty lit up. You know, I've got a reflective vest on. I've got a headlamp. And I've got a handheld flashlight. Well, this car doesn't, it doesn't change its course. It keeps coming straight for me. And when that happens, what I usually do is I just, you know, I shine my handheld flashlight into the windshield to kind of alert them. Hey, there's a guy out here running. Well, this car still keeps coming straight for me. And I thought now is a good time to jump off the road. And I turned to my left to jump off the road and there's just a solid dirt embankment there. There's nowhere to, to go. And now this car is bearing down on me and I'm kind of doing the head fake with this two ton massive steel and whoosh, this car goes by me so closely. I could literally feel the heat of their radiator on, on my quads. They were that close. And then I got kind of mad. I thought, you know, they had to have seen me. They were, they were toying with me. That's just, that's not right. So I held up my fist. It was a closed fist. You know, there's no digits extended or anything. <laughs> and when I did that, the car hit the brakes. And I thought, oh, no, maybe I shouldn't have done that. <laughs> and then they put it in reverse and they came backing up toward me. And I thought, this is it. I mean, I, there's nowhere to run. There's nowhere to hide. I've, 
I've met my destiny out here on this lonely backcountry road. And the car comes screeching in a hole right next to me. And this manic woman, she jumps out of the driver's seat and she runs around the front of the car. And she, you know, she opens the passenger side door and she starts rifling through this, this bag that's on the seat. And I'm standing there just, you know, paralyzed in fear thinking, is she going to pull out a knife? Is she going to pull out a gun? Like, you know, how is the end going to come? And well, she pulls out a copy of my book and she looks at the cover because there's a picture of me on the cover running. And she looks at me and she's like, oh, my God, you're him. You're that guy. Oh, that's so ironic. My boyfriend just loves you. And I, I just bought him a copy of your book. You got to sign it for me. And I'm looking at her like, what the hell? And she pulls out. I'm like, I don't have a pen. She pulls out a pen. She's like, here, here, here's a pen. His name is Bob. Say something inspirational. And I felt like writing, Bob, uh, your girlfriend is a psycho. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I signed Bob's book and she threw it back in the car and she's like, oh, thank you. He'll so appreciate that. And she just runs back, jumps in the driver's seat, closes the door and speeds off into the night. So that was probably my my scariest wildlife encounter. How in the hell did she recognize that it was you? <laughs> I, don't, I have no idea. That, I think that's why she was coming to like bearing down on me. She must have, you know, Bob must have said this guy runs all night out here. Well, that's not a unique thing for people to uh, let you know that they or maybe somebody that they know is a big fan of yours and that you helped inspire them into getting into racing and ultra marathons. What is it like to have people come up to you and thank you during races or maybe outside of races and uh, thank you for who you are and for the inspiration? I'll, I'll never get tired of it. And I, each one, you know, affects me so deeply. Um, I, I, I can't think of a higher calling than inspiring someone else, you know, to get more active and, and try to live a more complete life. So I've got, you know, I've, I don't know how many letters I've got handwritten letters. Um, I put them, I save them all. I can't, I just can't throw them away, but I've got boxes and boxes in my garage of people that have, you know, written to me. And a lot of them, you know, the first sentence is, you know, you changed my life. And to me, that is just so profound and powerful and, and stirring. Um, I, I never get tired of it. And, and honestly, I've learned that inspiration is a two-way street. A lot of times I talk to people that, you know, tell me that I've inspired them. And, you know, I learn about the hardships they've overcome, which are much more difficult than what I've overcome. And it's really an inspiration for me to hear their stories. So it's a, it's a wonderful thing. And, you know, I don't know how it is I inspire people because I, I don't set out with the purpose of inspiring people. I just, I do what I love. And I think that writing about, you know, the things that I write about, it, it get, I think it just gives people permission uh, to do some daring things themselves. Well, I'm sure they not only inspire you, but so does your own father. What does your dad mean to you, not only in the world of racing, but just in general? <laughs> he's, he's quite a colorful character, as you probably gathered from the book. Yeah. But, you know, you, you learn so much from your, your parents and from your father. Uh, you know, you, you learn how to be, but also how not to be. <laughs> <laughs> so he's, in, he's in, influenced me in both ways. But you know, the one thing with my dad is that he, he's always there. He's always there for me. And, you know, a lot of times when I was younger, I didn't always want him there. I mean, I thought it was strange that, you know, my dad is showing up at all my games. He's always, you know, at my, my races, my sporting events. And I didn't always appreciate it. 
but I reflect back now and, you know, some of the other um, teammates of mine, their fathers were never there. And I just think, you know, my father always being there was, was such a, a gift and he's just, he's a great guy. He's so supportive. Your mom and your dad were both there for that Western States run 100 that you ran a couple of years ago. And so was your son, Nicholas. Now, Nicholas was not a regular participant in your ultra marathon races. So how special was it for Nicholas to be there for you for that Western States 100 a few years ago? It was, it was very meaningful. I mean, there, you know, there's, there's a saying that, um, in school, you know, you, you get the lesson and then you take the test in parenting, you take the test and then you get the lesson. So Nicholas had, you know, as, as he became a teenager, as, as a lot of teenagers uh, do, they, they, they grow more distant from their, their parents. And then he went off to college and he went to college in a different state. And, you know, I, I, I always thought of Nicholas as just this little boy, this kind of young and capable little boy that always needed help. And when he came home from summer, uh, for summer, from summer school to, um, to spend some time with us, uh, and I told him I was running Western States, he said, I'll crew for you, dad. And I thought, oh, geez, you know, crewing for someone is really a big commitment. It's, you know, you, it's kind of their, your life support when you're out there doing these, you know, these hundred mile races through the wilderness. And I, I was concerned. I thought, you know, is he going to take it seriously? Um, is he going to be, a, you know, is he capable and able to do this? And I was really quite worried about it. And he, he, so he was so nonchalant about, um, crewing for me. And, you know, I started the race thinking, okay, here goes. And what, what ended up inevitably happening is Nicholas was just the most responsible, reliable, capable crew person I'd ever had. I mean, he was just so on it. <laughs> And it really surprised me because it was a side of my son I'd never seen. I'd never thought of him as as being someone that was, you know, that paid that much attention because in normal conversations, it almost was like he wasn't paying attention. But it ended up that he was just really, really a solid guy. And I didn't see that until, um, you know, until he crewed for me at Western States when he was uh, 20 years old. So about 43 miles in at Western States, the course becomes treacherous between a couple points called Last Chance and Devil's Thumb. Why does this part of the trail even exist, Dean? Well, you know, the the Western States 100-mile endurance run is the original, you know, 100-mile endurance trail run. So it's kind of the granddaddy. And, you know, the lore around that race and the history is is, um, quite interesting. But the section you just described, it used to be actually um, a, a tollway in the 1800s, and that was because of the the gold boom in California. You know, the 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 miners had come out and they were mining in the backcountry, and they would use this footpath uh, to get to Sacramento where they could sell their gold. But the one stretch of trail that you just described is is really treacherous. And there was a, an inn nearby, and the innkeepers, they got they got tired of you know collecting dead bodies, quite literally. So they said, "We're going to collect a, a toll from all passersby, and we're going to use the toll to, you know, make, to improve the trail, to make it better, so we're, people aren't dying left and right." <laughs> and that was how that trail got you know it got actual switchbacks um, cut into it, and it's actually navigatable on foot now without dying. So it's navigatable, but what's it like running down this route? (laughs) 
it's a, a just it's a, like descending into hell. It just gets hotter <laughs> and hotter the lower you get. And uh, anyone who's run uh, long distances knows that it's it's often the downhills that destroy you worse than the uphills. And Western states is notorious for the downhills. There's you know there's sixteen thousand feet of elevation gain, but there's twenty one thousand feet of elevation loss. So these downhills. Uh, really wreck you. And at that point in the in the race, a lot of people, that's kind of, you know, their last steps they take because the downhill just um, overwhelms them and they got a they got a DNF at that point. Wow. So you end up breakdown crying with about two miles left in this race. Why? Uh, it was just, you know, it was a reflection on the time that 25 years earlier, you know, my dad and I had just had a moment there where uh, at mile, it's actually around mile um, 99. So it's about 1.2 miles from the finish. The trail exits uh, onto a road at that point. So you've you've now just run, you know, 99 miles through the wilderness, and now you come into a township and you enter the road. And you know, at that point, 25 years earlier, uh, I, I I somehow got to mile 99 and I collapsed. And I thought, uh, that's it. I'm done. Like I can't. <laughs> it seems so close, but covering another mile seemed entirely impossible. You know, my dad looked at me and I said, dad, what do I do? I mean, I, I'm done. He's just said, you know, run if you can, walk if you have to, crawl if you must, just never give up. And I literally started crawling toward the finish line. And to me, it was just so powerful that 25 years later, my dad is still standing there uh, waiting for me to emerge from the trail so that he could um, cheer me on to the finish. And uh, it was a reflective moment <laughs> and, I, and I had my moment and people said that was, you know, beautiful watching that and, and off I ran and somehow made it to the finish line. Now, is part of the reason why you made it to the finish line because your son Nicholas uh, volunteered to run that last little bit with you? That certainly was a, that was a, a compelling factor, let's put it that way. Is that your favorite mile plus that you've run throughout the course of your career? I think that that and I also I ran a, a 10 kilometer race with my daughter under uh, my daughter Alexandria on her 10th birthday hmm. and running the 10K with her on her 10th birthday. I think that parallels the experience with Nicholas. So, Dean, you've obviously run a lot of miles over time, hundreds of miles at a time. You've run across the country multiple times, both to the east and to the west. How many more hundred mile excursions do you have in those legs and in that mind? Well, it's funny. <laughs> it's funny you should say that because um, uh, in a couple of days I'm heading to Australia to do a run across uh, Australia. So we'll we'll see. But um, I tell people my 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 finish line is a pine box. You know, when I'm ten feet under, I, you know, there's a saying: find find what you love and let it kill you. And I've kind of subscribed to that. What do you love other than racing? Exploration. I mean, to me, running is about inner and outer exploration. So I, I love I love to race, but I also love to run for nothing other than the pure joy of running. You know, if you can view running as play, if running can be worthwhile in itself, then you'll never burn out. Any parting thoughts before I bid you adieu, Dean? No, I just I, I hope if you pick up the book, you enjoy it. Um, you know, just just before we came on to this interview, it's funny. I I got I was reading through some of my emails, 
And a guy sent me an email today and it said, um, last night he intended to read a couple chapters of my book uh, before bed. And he said, six hours later, he, he finished the last page. And, <laughs> and then he said, and then I got up, I just had to go running. <laughs> so, you know, if it motivates and energizes you like that, then it's, it's, it's been worth the journey. It really is a gripping read. He is Dean Carnazas, a legend in the running world, a former Time Magazine 100 Most Influential People in the World, most well-known ultra-marathoner in the sports history, and a best-selling author. His newest book is titled A Runner's High, My Life in Motion. Dean, thank you for the time today, and thank you for this wonderful book. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you for the time. Join me next time when I speak with former CIA spy Christina Hillsberg on License to Parent, how my career as a spy helped me raise resourceful, self-sufficient kids. Thanks to Gentleman Jesus for the intro and outro music. Hear more of his work at GentlemanJesus.com. And thanks to you for hanging out. You can listen, learn, and follow for free at BooksOnPod.com. For Books on Pod, I'm Trey Elling. Good day. <laughs>